Okay, I just realized that I forgot some very, very important people, which that's the hard thing about thank yous. You always leave someone out, someone that's really important and dear to you and almost like family. And Graham and Caroline, are you here? Graham, Caroline? No? Okay. These are our interns that have been with us for two years, and they're leaving us um, now, really in a couple of weeks. With the, they're, with the seniors, they are transitioning out of RUF, and we'll be getting two new interns. But thank you from the bottom of my heart for all of your service to our campus and to the people in this room. We love you, and we're going to miss you deeply. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Judges chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you have the Bible on your phone, or maybe uh, you, you don't have a phone with the Bible on it. Look on the handout in front of you. The passage is printed for you there as well. Tonight we come to the end of our study in the book of Judges chapter 19, and you might be thinking, well, there are actually two more chapters chapters 20 and 21 in the book, but really chapters 20 and 21 flow out of and are a result of what we see in chapter 19. And I want to start tonight by being really honest with you. I've read the Bible several times through in my life. I've actually spent four years um, getting a master's in Bible and studying it intensely in graduate school. And in my opinion, in lots of people's opinion, there is not a more horrific, awful, difficult passage than the one we see in Judges chapter 19. Um, I've told many of you this this week, but when I was first reading it, I hadn't read it in a, a long time, and when I was first reading it to prepare for this week, I almost couldn't get through it. I actually had to put it down uh, because it evoked so much emotion in me. But you know, that's one of the reasons why we do what we do in RUF. Been around RUF, we know we, you know we march straight through books of the Bible. Last semester it was Revelation. This semester it's the book of Judges. But we go straight through books of the Bible for the most part. Uh, and rather than simply choosing a topic every week. And here's why. Because if it were left up to me to choose a topic every week to talk on, you know what I would do? It would always be the easy stuff. It would always be the things that make me the most comfortable and are the most easy to talk about. And so when we go through books of the Bible, particularly one like the book of Judges, we hit a passage like chapter 19 and it forces us to deal with the difficult and hard stuff of the Bible that take us way out of our comfort zone and make us feel very uncomfortable. Not in a million years would I choose to preach Judges 19 as the last RUF, not of the semester, but of the entire year. But that's actually what we're going to do. Because that's the way the book of Judges ends. 
And because it's the way the book of Judges ends, it's the way that we're going to end our year with RUF. And so I want to warn you, if you've never read Judges chapter 19, it's a brutal passage. And I know that as we go through this, and as you hear me reading it, and as we start to talk about it, for some of you in this room, it's going to, you're going to be able to relate to some of the horrors that we read. And it might invoke some sort of emotion and stress in you. And I want you to know that that's okay. I want you to know that if you need to leave, if you need to take a break, that that would not offend me and that that would be totally fine. I also want you to know that when we look at this, we don't look at a passage like this in order to be callous or in order to be cold. We look at a passage like this because I want you to know that God sees the horror. God sees the horror that exists in the world. And He doesn't just see it, but He actually gives us hope in the midst of it. Okay, with that in mind, let me read Judges chapter 19, verses 1 through 30. Let me remind you, maybe more than ever, um, this is God's Word. Starting in verse 1, chapter 19. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him, and his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. Okay, now skip down to verse 10. Okay, basically verses 5 through 10, it just over and over, the father and the the Levite wants to leave, and the, father in light, the, the, the father-in-law basically makes him stay. That, that's basically 5 through 10. Starting in verse 10. But finally the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. And when they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now. Let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. And so they passed and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one 
took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from work in, his, in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city and said, and the old man said, Where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, We're passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taking, taken me into his house. We have straw, feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servant, there, there is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, men from the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since the man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. And so the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning and he opened the door of the house and went out to go on his way. Behold, there was his concubine laying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. As crazy as this passage is, it's God's Word and it is useful for teaching and correcting and training in all righteousness. Well, let me pray and ask God to help us. <clears throat> Father, um, come, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. Father, we need you desperately. Uh, the world needs you. We need someone to come and to help us make sense of this kind of wickedness. Father, we're thankful that Jesus in the cross 
And actually, you speak into things like this. So come and speak into it now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've been coming this semester, basically, if Judges has taught us anything, it's taught us that gore and glory go hand in hand. But it's not just the book of Judges, it's actually the entire Bible that we see gore and glory go hand in hand. We actually see it come together and culminate in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it, the cross, the gore of the cross. And at the very same time, we see the glory of the resurrection. And I think this is important for us as Christians particularly, to come to grips with this reality. Because despite what people might say that the Bible is somehow out of touch with reality, no, no, the Bible is very in touch with reality. The Bible keeps it real. You see, the Bible, despite what people might say, is not rated G. The Bible is a hard R. In fact, in passages like this, we can say NC-17. And I would go to say that this passage, if it was made into a movie, could not be shown in the theaters in Oxford. No question. And as I think about this passage, I want to confess something. I was afraid. I was afraid to talk about this tonight because it's too dark. It's too painful. It's actually too real and too scary. And I know some of you might be thinking, maybe you brought people to RUF for the first time and you're probably wishing I would have talked about something different. And I know that there are people here that have been, that you're in RUF and this is your first RUF meeting. And so the question is, so then why do we talk about it? People throughout all of church history, lots of commentators, lots of pastors, get to Judges 19 and they skip over it. And listen, I tried to do that. I wanted to do that. God wouldn't let me do it. I couldn't. And here's why I couldn't. Because if Jesus doesn't speak into the gore that's in this passage, if Jesus doesn't care about what we see here and doesn't engage the darkest spaces of the human existence, then He isn't worth our worship. You see, lots of Christians think that Christianity is rainbows and glitter. And the problem with that is what? Life. Life. Just look around. And you can't avoid the gore. And so if God doesn't have something to say about the horrific things that we see in this passage, then He doesn't have anything to say at all. But friends, this is why I'm a Christian. One of the reasons why I'm a Christian... It's because Christianity says that God does have something to say about the gore. God does have something to say about the horrors of life that we see in this passage. And not only does He have something to say about it, He doesn't leave us there, but He actually gives us hope in the midst of horrific things. And so those are the two points, horror and hope. And let me say this, I know that 
This might evoke more questions. You can't say everything. If you try to say everything, you'll end up saying nothing. And so if you have more questions, find me. I'd love to talk to you, have coffee, talk to you about the things that we're talking about tonight. Maybe the questions that I did not get to answer. Let's look at number one, the horror. I don't think I have to work real hard to justify the horror that we see in this passage and just how horrible it is. But I want to point out and just draw a couple of applications and conclusions and uh, implications from this passage. And the first one is this. I want to assure you that the way this made your stomach turn as we read it, it makes God's stomach turn too. That God sees this and he thinks it's horrible too. And how, here's how we know. Look at the bookends. Look at verse 1 and look at verse 30. He begins by telling you how horrible it is, and then he ends by telling us how horrible it is. Notice verse 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, remember that phrase we've learned over and over in the book of Judges? Well, notice he doesn't finish the phrase. Well, we know the phrase by now, don't we? In those days, there was no king. Everyone, what? Did what was right in their own eyes. What God is saying is this. When you attempt to rule your own life and rule yourself and live by your own rules, horrible things happen. Now listen, maybe not to the extreme of the horror that we see in this passage, but horrible things do happen. Verse 30. All who saw it said, such a thing has never happened before in Israel. Until this day, consider it, take counsel, and speak. And by seeing these bookends in that last statement by the narrator, here's basically what we see. It is God's way of saying loudly and clearly with tears in his eyes and with anger in his chest, this should not be. It's God's way of looking at this passage and saying, this is evil. And I think this is important for us to think about. It's in particularly important when it comes to sexual violence. Because sexual violence is something that often happens in secret and in the dark. But friends, God says there is nothing that is hidden from Him that he sees what happens in the dark. And did you find it interesting that we don't know the concubine's name? I wish we did, but we don't. Her name is never given. And the reason why it's not given is because what's important is that God knows her name. And God knows exactly what happened. And listen, I know in a room this size, there are people here that have been the victim of sexual violence. And I just want to say that I am so sorry that that happened to you. And I also want to say that God sees everything that happens in the dark. And that God weeps over it with you. And that God hates it just as much as you do. And the other thing I want to say is this. It's not your fault. 
It's not your fault. It wasn't the concubine's fault. These men took from her her humanity and took from her her power. Friends, what you know is evil is evil. And God sees it as evil too. And He is coming one day to do something about it. And to make all the wrongs and all the horrible things right. To make all the sad things come untrue. And right here, if you were here at the first week of the year, Judges chapter 1, insert everything we said about the justice of God. Insert it here, and if you, haven't, if you weren't here, you can go back and find the podcast back at the end of January. Secondly, I want you to notice that this whole passage is horrible. That there are no good guys in this passage. Everyone in this passage is objectifying and dehumanizing one another and abusing one another and manipulating one another. And the story centers around a concubine and the Levite. Now, I want you to think about that just for a second. Let me draw some things out. Think about the Levites. Who were the Levites? They were supposed to be the good guys. They were the religious leaders of the day. All of the priests came from the Levites. They were supposed to be serving God and doing ministry among the people. And then we have a concubine. A concubine's not a prostitute, but she's not an official wife either. So what is she? Well, she's basically a sex object. She's basically a sex slave. And so we have this religious leader at the center of the story and his sex slave. Look at verses 2 and 3. The concubine's unfaithful to him. And so she has to leave and go to her father's house. Why? Because that was a crime that was punishable by the death penalty. And so after four months, the Levite goes to her father's house to get her. And as they're heading back home, the story continues. You see, it's dark, darkness starts to fall. They're looking for a place to stay. And this is really important and significant in the narrative. They go to Jebus which has eventually become Jerusalem, but at this point, it is actually a Canaanite city. Okay, think about this. Let me translate that. It's a pagan town. They hate God. And the Levite, in his self-righteousness, says, I'm not going there. Because they will hurt me, and they will rob me, and they will abuse me. I'm going to... Friendly territory. I'm going to Israel because it is a safe haven for us. So let's go down the road to Gibeah. And so they go to Gibeah, which they think is safe territory because it's Israel. And they go to the town city square and no one shows them hospitality. They didn't have hostels or hotels and so you went to the town city and you waited for someone to come get you and take you into their home. Think about it. This is God's people and they're the ones that should be leading the way in hospitality. This guy shows up and no one takes them in. Eventually, this old Ephraimite comes 
and offers to take them in. And so they go to his house, they settle in, they have dinner, and then all of a sudden, as they're enjoying themselves and the, uh, enjoying one another's company, all of a sudden, a mob from this city, a mob of men surround this house and start pounding on the door, and they say, bring out the Levite so that we can have sex with him. Bring him out so that we can gang rape him. And so imagine the horror and the terror of everyone inside the house. They're completely surrounded. This mob is getting more aggressive, more sexually charged. There's no escape. There's nowhere to run. And so the host of the house, the master, the old man, does the unthinkable and comes out and says, take my virgin daughter, which I don't even have a category for, or take this concubine, They do not accept the offer. It gets more charged. The crowd isn't budging. And so the Levite grabs the concubine and throws her out. And it satisfies the mob. He closes the door. And they abuse her all night. And look at the implication in the passage. While the men of the house, the old man and the Levites sleep safely in their beds until the next morning. The sun starts to come up. The Levite gets up and leisurely packs his suitcase and drinks a cup of coffee and has breakfast, and he walks out the door in an effort to get on his way to go home, and he finds this concubine at the doorstep with her hands on the door. And look at the horror, verse 28, of his response. No sympathy, but basically treats her like an animal and says, get up, let us get going, and there's no answer. There's no response. Why is there no response? Because she's dead. And he's in a fit of rage, this Levite, not because she was raped, and not because she's dead, but he's in a fit of rage because these men in Gibeah basically ruined his property beyond repair. And in a fit of rage, he cuts her up and ships her body in 12 pieces to all of the 12 tribes of Israel in order to get revenge on Gibeah. He basically wants to get Israel fired up so that they will wipe Gibeah off of the map. And that's what happens. The book of Judges ends with Israel in a civil war and thousands of Israelites are killed And that's how the book ends. And the last verse of the book says, In those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so why is this passage in the Bible? I mean, why why would God put this here? And there are several reasons, but here's one I want you to think about. This self-righteous Levite who despised those people, the Canaanites, because they did such horrible things. And look at what he has done. And so we get a passage like this because God reminds us that it is entirely possible for God's people to be no different and in fact be worse than those that absolutely hate God. 
You see, this passage is meant to rattle us and to shake us to see that the darkness of sin just doesn't infect those bad people out there that we consider wicked and godless and immoral, but darkness of sin actually affects good people, upstanding religious people, people that think they have it all together. Friends, the mob and the Levite, though their sin expressed itself differently, underneath the surface, surface they were exactly the same. They were sinful, they were self-interested, and they were despicable. And friends, one of the points of this passage is trying to make is that it doesn't matter how good you think you might be. And this might be hard for some of you to believe. But the Bible says that you need Jesus just as much as the mob needed Jesus. And you see, this passage in the Bible says that the sin of every, every sin resides within the human heart. And if there are sins that you have not committed, it's not because you don't have the potential. But it's because God in His grace has restrained and protected you. See, what we see here is a picture of the human heart on display with no restraints, with no king. And friends, it's because of the wickedness here that Jesus came. And it's because of the wickedness we see here that Jesus had to die. Remember, the whole purpose of the book of Judges is to show us our need for a godly king. And so this points us to him because he is the hope that we all need. So that's the, sec the second point is hope. And this is very quick, I promise. What's interesting is chapter 20. If you were to look at chapter 20, the story continues and the Levite actually retells the story and basically when he tells it he says the men surrounded the house because they intended to kill me well that's true but also not true they surrounded the house because they wanted to have sex with him but he knew that they were so aggressive and so charged that it would eventually lead to his killing and he was right because look at what happens to the concubine in the story and so what I want you to grasp is this. The people on the inside of the house knew that they were not safe. They knew that their very lives were at stake. No one in that house wanted to go outside. And so what the Levite does in order to save his own life, against her will, he throws out the concubine into the mob in order to save his own life. She gets abused and violated and he sleeps safely in his bed. She gets torn to pieces. He's at peace. She dies. He lives. Friends, she never asked to be the savior of the people in that house. And, and she particularly did not want to be the savior or asked to be the savior of this wicked Levite who threw her to the mob. And when we read a story like this, it's easy for us to say, 
that's what this guy deserved. I mean, who would want to save this guy anyway? He's callous, he's ruthless, he's inhumane. Who in the world would willingly step out of that house and endure that abuse and torment for this wicked man? You know who would do a thing like that? Jesus would. You see, this woman is a dim and graphic picture of our true Savior, Jesus. And here's the difference. Jesus willingly walked out of the house. Jesus went headlong into everything in this world that threatens to undo us, and He takes it head on. And He, in a sense, looks at us and says, you stay inside. I will go out and endure unthinkable torment so that you don't have to. And that's exactly what He does. When we get to the New Testament, we see that Jesus gets torn, in a sense, to pieces. He's violated. He's abused. He's actually undone on the cross so that you can be safe and protected. Friends, Judges ends in this gut-wrenching, hard-to-read, horrific way because you and I need someone to deliver us and to save us from our gut-wrenching, horrific sin that exists in our life. And we need someone to deliver us from that. And we need someone who is committed to making the horrors that have been committed against us, to making those things right. And that person is Jesus. And He does that. He redeems us. And He sets the world right and heals us and forgives us and redeems us through gut-wrenching, horrible sacrifice. I know some of you, when you think about your story, there are things in your story that you feel so ashamed of. You've got things in your story that you look at and you say, that is so big, God cannot forgive me for that. There is no way. You feel that, that it's too big and too ugly to ever be forgiven. What is that for you? And maybe for you, it's the fact that you have sexually violated someone. That you have sexually abused someone. Or maybe you've had an abortion. Or maybe you feel deep shame in your life because you starve yourself and cut yourself. And you feel so much shame and it nags at you because it's a weight that never seems to go away. And you think, there's no way God can forgive me for that. Friends, if you believe that, you've missed something about the gospel. As shocking as your sin and my sin might be, the grace of God is more shocking. Friends, you are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. 
But God invites you into his arms. And listen, when you come to Jesus, he does not shame you. He does not label you, but he embraces you and puts his arms around you. I want to end by reading a portion of Isaiah 53, and I'm going to end the the whole year uh, by reading this passage. It's an Old Testament passage, and it's explicitly about Jesus, and I want you to pay attention as I read of the language that's used to describe Jesus' death. And I also want you to pay attention to the reason why. So listen as I read. Surely he took up up our affirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. And each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Jesus died the death that you and I deserve. And when we are convinced of that, it's life-changing. When we are convinced of that, we'll have the confidence to bring our real sin, as ugly as it might be, to bring it to Jesus and bring it to the cross. And when we bring it to the cross, we get forgiveness. We are healed. We are accepted. And we get to experience joy beyond anything that we could imagine. And so will you come to him? Even now, tonight. Let's pray.